Guide to Politics. I am Liz Philippos, and I'm here to offer an expanded perspective into this moment in our collective political lives so that we come to a deeper awareness of our capacity to transform and transcend the present paradigm as agents of transformation. Each week, I talk with creative leaders about their spiritual understanding of the current political moment the possibilities for the well-being of our planetary lives and the life of the planet itself. They inspire us to know that the personal is political and the political is spiritual. There are tremendous possibilities for transformation when we really come to know this. My guest today is Anna Louise Keating. Anna Louise is a professor in the Department of Multicultural Women's and Gender Studies at Texas Women's University. She's the author of Transformation Now and co-editor with Gloria Anzaldúa of This Bridge We Call Home, Radical Visions of Transformation. Anna Louise is probably most known for her work with Gloria Anzaldúa and about Gloria Anzaldúa. And for those of you who don't know, Gloria Anzaldúa is a significant Chicana feminist, a woman of color whose contribution to Western feminism has been an indigenous inspired worldview and metaphysical and spiritual principles. She writes a lot about the liminal, about the borderlands, about the in-between spaces, about the unnameable and uncategorizable parts of ourselves as sites of transformation. Gloria passed away a few years ago, but Anna Louise continues to do the work. That is to say that she continues to work with Gloria Anzaldu as concepts and continues to bring it out of the published material that Gloria had and the unpublished work so that we're getting not only a greater awareness of Gloria Anzaldúa's contribution, but we're also getting a canon of Indigenous-inspired spiritual, metaphysical worldviews that serve our feminist, womanist aspirations for transformation. So I think it's remarkable work that Anna Louise does. She also brings this work to her teaching, where her classroom is also a site of powerful political transformation, and she has written about and presented, and she employs and applies transformational approaches to teaching and pedagogy. She's a certified yoga teacher, a mother. She's editing a series of feminist texts for a publisher, and she's also an engaging speaker. The current research she's working on is on womanist spiritual activism, which is our topic for today. Welcome, Anna Louise. Thank you so much for joining me today. I want to begin by asking how your work on spirituality is received in academic circles and how that reception has changed over the years 
And I mentioned that because in earlier articles you wrote about the resistance you experienced, and I just wonder how your work is being received today and whether academic circles are more receptive to spiritual conversations. I think in general, academics have this, what I call a spirit phobia, because of Cartesian thought and because of our emphasis on a certain kind of empiricism and rationalism, anything having to do with spirit, you know, which can't be seen, which seems to smack of organized religion in ways that seem to violate independent thinking, academics tend to stay away from. And a lot, certainly not all, but a lot of academic feminists share that spirit phobia. And then you can kind of fold that into concern about appearing to be overly essentializing in the ways that sometimes like references to goddesses and things like that kind of come across, which also can, I think, make a lot of feminists kind of wary Mm -hmm. of talking about spirit. And also it can seem to be escapist, right? Because spirit seems to be so intangible, so not obviously connected with social injustice that to focus on things of spirit can seem to be just escaping or wishful thinking or part of a commodified new age or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I was really interested in uh, some of the experiences that you recount about like a non-physical or a, a boundary shifting experience that you had that gave you insight into the reality, the truth of our spiritual nature. And I wonder, can you talk a little bit about then how you make those links? How are you making the links between spirituality and politics and social transformation? Yeah, so I I have made the link between these things in different ways over the years. I've seen it as a source of personal empowerment. I think of something like this bridge called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color, and that last section, El Mundo Zurdo, The Vision, where Anzal Dua has a quote from Louisa Tish talking about how when she went past Christianity and rediscovered, and I would say partially recreated, a spirituality that connects with her ancestors, that empowered her in ways that gave her the confidence to enact social change. So there's that kind of there's that kind of connection that can happen. Philosophically, I've been thinking a lot about if if metaphysically or ontologically reality is this very complex monism. So everything is made up of one thing that takes an infinite variety of forms. We could call that one thing, energy, spirit, thought, matter, whatever we call it. In a sense, that doesn't matter, no pun intended. Um, (laughs) Then that becomes a connection. So it's this stuff that, that vibrates at different degrees, and we can kind of like align ourselves with that and use that to somehow make change. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds very abstract. I realize I'm still kind of thinking about that and trying to figure out how to like put that into words. Uh, one thing that sort of occurred to me, you talk about ancestors, or when Gloria Anzaldúa talks about ancestors, that everyone has ancestors, simply because in a more mainstream Western context, we don't operate with that conscious awareness. I just am remembering a class I was in where I brought something of my my mother's to share, and I talked about my ancestors, and someone asked me, who's your ancestors? And I was like, well, you have ancestors. 
(laughs) (laughs) It's just our lineage, those who have gone before us, and that we all have that. Yes, and we have ancestors who, you know, can be traced through bloodlines, like back and back and back and back. We also have almost like spiritual ancestors, those people who've gone before us, who maybe their teachings resonate with us in these incredibly powerful ways. I mean, certainly for me, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who I did my dissertation on, was one of those ancestors. And now Anzaldúa, since she's passed over, she's one of those ancestors. Audre Lorde is one of those ancestors for me. Mm -hmm. Paula Gunn Allen. These are people whose teachings just like spoke to me at such a deep level. They really helped me to find myself. Mm -hmm. And I think for many, you know, for many people ancestors can also kind of function like that for those of us who get our teachings from other people. Mm -hmm. Part of also what's occurring to me then is we're talking about things that are invisible. So people that have passed on our ancestry, the, the realm of the invisible, which is beyond our five senses, and yet has a real impact, even if we think about things like memory or history or consciousness, things that uh, feminists are always working with. And so it seems like there's something about becoming literate in the invisible, gaining a, a deeper, not just awareness, but ability to move in realms of invisibility. Is that something that you can comment on? or? Yeah, I love how you phrased that. I mean, that's like a really nice image. And as you started saying that, I was thinking about something like the wind, right? Like, we can't literally see the wind. It's, it also is invisible. But we can see its impact very often. If, if it's blowing hard, we see the leaves move. If it's blowing super hard, we see signs turned over and so on. And in a sense, I think a literacy of spirit can be like that. Um, and Anzaldúa writes about that in Light in the Dark, Luz en lo Oscuro, uh, her book that was published in 2015, when she talks, for example, about walking through a park and she sees a snake and she reads that snake for a certain kind of meaning. And throughout, you know, in these different passages, she's like reading her surroundings and there's these additional meanings there. So the meanings kind of are this invisible part of the visible And I think spirit can be like that as well. Yeah, um, there's so much, so much that we engage with that is ultimately invisible. But there's something about talking in terms of spirit that that sets up a different set of defenses or concerns. And I suppose it's partly what you started talking about that it seems like there's so many things going on in the material that we need to be able to do something in the material. And talking spiritually sounds like we're departing from that urgent need. So talk a little bit about how it is that feminism, womanism, and a spiritual awareness can impact material change? How does that change the world? I think probably it changes the world in, you know, multiple ways. And of course, those ways are going to be funneled through each person who is doing their activism, whether it's through following what we often call intuition and making connections, for example, maybe among people from different groups. For some, certainly someone like Anzaldúa or... 
Holden Allen or Lily Mapayan, who has done really important work in womanism, there's this kind of a shift in how identity is seen so that we make connections with people who visibly might not look like us, who come from different groups, who have, have different labels and so on, and yet we share a type of affinity. And then when people come together in these kind of affinity groups, you have the power of the group that can, you know, make change on specific specific issues. So I think that would be certainly one way. I think um, personally, because I am, you know, I'm an academic, I mean, I teach, I write, I think that, you know, call it spirit, call it whatever, has compelled me to kind of like walk out on various intellectual limbs and make some pretty big claims that can be supported through a, maybe kind of through pragmatism, but not in these like very logical ways. And then through making these claims, I hear from people who it's like been really useful for them to go on and do their own work. Or then I've made connections with other people and in, the, and in my teaching the same kind of thing so that it's been meaningful for students in terms of like getting a sense of meaning for their lives, not because they like have adopted something I've said, but because something I've said has given them permission to go explore their truth. Giving people permission, giving students permission to have a broader view of what's possible or an expanded sense of who they are by introducing these concepts that are more spiritual or etheric, beyond the body, right? Yeah, and learning to listen, like learning to listen to their intuition. No, you're not crazy because you feel that. In fact, why don't you explore what that means to you and see where that takes you? Mm-hmm. Things like that that they're not getting elsewhere in their lives. Right. Yeah, intuition is one of those invisible things that everybody has the experience of at some point or another, knowing who's on the phone before you pick it up or uh, running into someone you just thought of and hadn't seen for a long time. It happens all the time, yeah? Mm-hmm what seems random or coincidental, but it's energy. It's really, it's real. <laughs> yeah, and, the, and see, and then, like, looping back to one of your previous questions, when we start to read that, when we start to read those coincidences, those synchronicities, those intuitions, then I think we can start to, like, build bigger meaning. Yes, that's where we start to create the language, isn't it, by giving it credibility. Yeah. Yeah, and credibility as much as any kind of knowing. I mean, intuition is such a powerful framework of knowledge. To have access to it on a regular basis, that's divine guidance. <laughs> yeah, Patricia Hill Collins talks about something similar in some of her work, and she calls it visionary pragmatism. It's being pragmatic, wanting to make change, but also having these visions that go beyond you know, the status quo. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we're talking about and kind of reading these messages and trusting, trusting one's intuition, going beyond the visible, is part of what can give us those visions, which then become really useful in terms of making social change. So we don't, be, you know, we don't let ourselves be stopped by that whole, oh, it's always been this way, or, oh, that's not realistic, or, oh, you can't do that kind of change. So we can, like, use our imaginations and go farther. I mean, because, honestly, the strategies we have do not seem to be working very well. Right. So we really need new tactics. We need new visions. And I believe this is one way to get them. Like, and, and it's, you know, I'm saying new visions. 
And in a way, it's kind of by going back, right, to ancestral traditions or to, to these less Western ways of thinking. Yes. And so one of the concepts that you've mentioned in some of your writing is about the metaphysics of interconnectivity or radical interconnectivity. Radical here means like at the root, like relational at the root. Mm-hmm. So tell us what that is. And if you're just tuning in, this is A Spiritual Guide to Politics, and we're talking with Anna Louise Keating. If everything is interconnected, so, you know, if we're all in the same boat, everybody on this planet, we're all in the same boat, we rise and sink together. We're all interconnected. So just like if you drop a pebble into a lake, it ripples out. The water ripples out. It's that idea which I think provides an alternative to the radical individualism that those of us in the United States, for the most part, you know, really educated into. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Every man for himself. And on and on we have so many slogans, you know, and we have so many movies of the hero who seems to go out and just conquer everything by him or sometimes herself. Or, you know, U.S. literature is full of that kind of thing. It That ignores the many ways that we are really connected with everyone else, with everything else. The air I'm breathing is not unique stuff that just like pours into my lungs and then out. I'm breathing air that's been processed by lots of other people. I'm breathing air that's been, you know, the oxygen has been produced by plants and trees. I mean, there's so many ways that we are like radically linked that we tend to ignore. And so I'm also very interested in following that. And then to go back again to that, like reading the signs or messages, well, that also is part of what it means. If, like, if we're really interconnected, then what's happening around us is, is related to us, not in some egotistical kind of way, but in terms of maybe messages or in, in terms of our ability to impact it. So that can also be really useful in terms of thinking about social change. I see this all the time in my teaching. Like students are just like, I'm just one person. What can I do? Mm. I can't do anything. But if we're really all interconnected, then yeah, you can do things. It might be small things. You might not realize the impact, but that doesn't mean it's not having an impact because by virtue of the fact that we are all interconnected, there is an impact. Yeah, and just even walking with the realization that we're interconnected to everything and everybody just changes the daily experience that any of us can have coming up through a a kind of radically separate framework of understanding that we can see each other as part of the same thing that our seeing changes. That mm-hmm. seems like tremendous possibilities, yeah? Yeah, all sorts of opportunities to kind of like experiment. So what are the implications of that? And we can each kind of live it out and see those implications in different ways. Another thing that you talk about is a post-oppositional politics and what you were saying about how we need new tactics because clearly the way we've been doing things is not working. I would think part of what's not working are oppositional politics. And so a post-oppositional politics, what is that? What does that offer? Beautiful connection you just made between this idea of this radical interconnectedness and post-oppositionality. For a number of years, I've been troubled by oppositional politics, even like really good, valuable ones like anti-sexism, anti-racism, anti, you know, so many movements like that. Those are oppositional politics. 
but so often it seems to me what happens is that when we're in those anti-whatever movements, we get defined by what we're reacting against. Rather than thinking and acting, we react. So our actions become shaped by that which we are trying to get rid of. And then sometimes I wonder, like, sometimes I've, I've seen activists and they seem so, so wedded to their identity as anti-this or anti-that that I have wondered, like, so what would happen if that thing that's being struggled against goes away? You know, it shapes us so much. So then I started thinking, so what are other ways to make change? Like, are there ways to make change that kind of step outside that push-me-pull-you, that back-and-forth, that binary? In in my book, Transformation Now, I tried to think about what some of those ways might be, and I especially looked at theories by U.S. women of color, kind of to see other possibilities for other kinds of activism that don't just react against something, that don't just try to take something down, but go outside that discussion and take a different approach, maybe to build something different. And so in this landscape, opposing the current administration or opposing the policies, you're suggesting that rather than rather than put yourself in that position, that there's an, another angle, another approach. You know, before the election, even all of the campaigning leading up to it, all of the negativity the huge negative ugly claims and all of that, it just seems like pouring of all of this hostility feeding this certain kind of anger. So my question at this point is, are there other ways to challenge that that aren't just meeting that anger with anger from the other side? Negative name-calling on both sides. I'm just like wondering what other ways there might be. I, especially if we're coming at it from a transformational perspective, you know, part of what our current politics seem to be about is about division and fragmentation mm-hmm. and confrontation and exclusion. And so if we, we're talking about a politics of inclusion and a politics of justice and fairness and creating the conditions under which everyone could thrive, a politics of interconnection, then the tactic or strategy of anger and opposition, we can't get there from here, basically. Yeah. I know I've been in lots of conversations where activists will say, you know, you need to use anger. Anger is righteous or whatever else, however else we might put it. But I find that anger uses me. I'm not that empowered. I'm just angry. For me as well. And, I'm, you know, it might work for other people. I mean, it really might. And, I mean, you know, Audre Lorde has that really important essay about the uses of anger. And I'm certainly not saying mm-hmm. activists should not be angry. But I, for me also, anger has not served me. It has just, you know, I mean, physiologically, it hasn't been good for me. I find when I put anger out, I get anger back. Or I even sometimes like end up in these situations where I amplify my own anger. So it has not enabled me to transform anything, and it has not even made me happier, healthier, or anything. So that's a lot of why I'm interested in figuring out other ways to enact change. Right. So what I, you know, what I appreciate about your work is that you have an embodied experience of being on the planet as someone awake and aware and activated. And so when you're talking about how anger 
doesn't work for you. It's it's not theoretical. It's not opinion based. It's really you've had the experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the same way that you've had the experience of your expanded sense of self, and so that's you know really important to embody the things that we talk about and teach. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We are in this era of revelation and disclosure. I'm talking about things like hashtag Me Too, and I've seen so many versions of that since the Hollywood disclosures and this particular president and his approach to women and you know, the various things that we some people would call hyper-patriarchy or just patriarchy, I suppose. What's, what are your thoughts about this moment that we're in terms of men and women and power? I teach women and gender studies. And so when, especially when I teach undergraduates, especially when the undergraduates are young women, and I don't mean like young white women. Most of my students are typically women of color. But regardless, and even regardless of class, um, the majority of them, you know, it's like, well, I'm not a feminist, but I think things should be equal, and they are equal. That's the kind of narrative I heard over and over again. We don't need feminism now because women are equal. I'm a woman, and if I go after whatever job I want, I'll get it, and so on. I think that these Me Too disclosures and sometimes people's reactions to them, well, you know, well, that's just how it is, or, well, of course she had to do this to get that. I think it's really exposing, call it patriarchy, call it sexism, call it the inequities. It's exposing some of those underlying narratives. So it's it ends up denormalizing it a little bit, and I think that's good. And I think the same thing with the election. Some people were just so surprised that Clinton didn't win. I don't know if it was that surprising, given Trump's dog whistling, given all of the hidden appeal to white supremacy. So all these people who thought we were, especially white people who thought we were living in this post-race time, it should be pretty obvious that we're really not. So, so I think that all of these various disclosures can kind of function to maybe show us how much we haven't progressed in certain ways. And maybe that exposure will help to incite people to make change in mm. ways that will make things more just. Mm. It's bringing to the surface things that hidden in plain sight. Uh, <laughs> yeah. People of color are not surprised, or women bringing it to the mainstream conversation in a way that it maybe it becomes a little bit urgent to do something about it, especially for those who feel surprised, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're coming to the end of our time together. So do you have anything you want to share with listeners about a spiritual approach to politics or womanism or feminism that just what, what we can leave them with? I think number one would be just don't assume that things are the way they have to be. Let's not be tricked into thinking that we can't make change. Let's not be tricked into thinking, well, that's just the way it is. People are how they are. People are going to do what they're going to do. And all of those different slogans that that we say and don't even realize that we're saying, I think that's one of the first steps to making change. Don't stop with what you can see with your eyes or hear with your ears. Question things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's wonderful. Where can listeners find out more about you? Well, they can go to my books. I think Transformation Now kind of has a lot of the ideas that we've been talking about. 
Mm-hmm. So that would be a good source. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. That's terrific. Well, I so appreciate you joining me today to have this conversation. It's been very enjoyable and stimulating and wonderful, perfectly placed. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Anna Louise Keating, Professor of Multicultural Women's and Gender Studies at Texas Women's University, talking about spiritualized approaches to feminism and transformational politics. I am Liz Philippos, and this is A Spiritual Guide to Politics, reminding you that the personal is political, and the political is spiritual. There are tremendous possibilities for transformation when we really come to know this. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay in the light of your very own being. Bye. Uh.